today I want to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, together with you, and talk about another critical piece of being a citizen of heaven. So let's pray, and then I'll introduce my family. I told you I'd introduce my family to you. Let me pray. Father, we are so glad that we serve a Savior who moves mountains, that Jesus is enough. And so, God, for being all that you are to all that we need, we say thank you. And thank you that you are our heavenly Father. And on this day, we honor fathers and we honor you for the way you care for your children, the way you supply what we need day after day. We are blessed people, blessed citizens of heaven. So we thank you. Now give us wisdom and insight, and where necessary, bring deep conviction to our soul as you push us into new places of trust in you. Today, we pray in your name. Amen. So first things first, I promised I would introduce my family. Today, I am privileged to have my lovely wife, Ginger, is here with me right over here. And, yes... And I, so I couldn't bring everybody here with me because they're involved in church and our home church, et cetera. So here is a photo of my family. So I'm going to go through them with, with you. On the far left, as you're looking at it there, that's me. This is at Crown College graduation this year. And uh, next to me is my wife, Ginger. Next to Ginger, moving left to right, is my son, Wilson, the tall blonde. He was here last week, graduated from high school, heading off to college in the fall. Then the two uh, daughters are in the middle there with their crown regalia. They graduated from Crown College this year. That's my daughter, Sarah. She will be going to Duke Divinity School this fall. And then my daughter, Rebecca, uh, graduated from Crown, and she's getting married to that guy next to her. What's his name? What's his name again? Oh, Ryan. Yes. That guy is getting married to my daughter uh, in a month, actually, mid-July. And, uh, and he graduated from Crown as well. He works full-time at the college. And then our youngest son, Nathaniel, is off on the right there. Uh, he's in high school and is uh, part of a worship team ministry at another church. And so uh, that's the gang. Now, I got another show. If you show us the next one there, just zooming in a little bit on the gang. There they all are. That was about a month or so ago. We were out at a park, and I snapped that shot. Good-looking gang, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you have to agree with this. Good-looking all of the good looks, all of the good looks come from my wife. All of the brains, however, come from her too. And, uh, but it's, it's a good, good. Now, what people don't realize, though, and this is, I mean, as a pastor, this gets a little intimate, but we've, now we've had three, this, this is our, my fourth Sunday with you, so three Sundays behind us, and I feel like I can come a little clean with you that not only do I have this family, but I have another family. Can we show the fi- picture of my other family? There, there they are. <laughs> my other family. Got a couple guitar players in the, in the room. Let me introduce you to this family. Can I do it? Okay. So on the couch on the left is a Gretsch. I'm going quickly here. If you, have, if you want details, come up to talk to me afterwards. So a Gretsch, a Fender Strat, uh, 2008 Les Paul from Gibson, then an acoustic guitar on the couch on the right. That's a Breedlove. Then on the floor, that's a 1949 or 50 L49. Uh, Gibson acoustic guitar that was my grandfather's and then the banjo was also my grandfather's that's a late 1960s uh, master tone Gibson master tone banjo 
Uh, I brought a couple in person because they didn't make the photo and they felt bad. <laughs> so this is a Fender Telecaster that I, I've had for about a year. This one's actually more interesting for those guitar aficionados in the audience. This is a Martin who makes acoustic guitars, right? In the 1960s, they tried to get into the electric guitar market. They made 1,500 of these from 65, 66, 67. This is a 1966 Martin GT75 that uh, my grandmother, her best friend, passed away, and they found this in a closet, and I ended up with it. So uh, Martin, 1966. I got a few others that didn't make the road trip. They were busy, I guess. Uh, so this is my family. So people sometimes ask me, well, if you've got so many instruments... Which one is your favorite, right? Like, which one do you want to play the most? Which one is your favorite? And the answer is, it's obvious. It's been the same for years. My favorite instrument of all the ones I have is always the next one. Amen. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's the one that I don't have that I want that is my favorite instrument ever. And so when I'm at the guitar store and I'm playing, I think, oh, I don't have an instrument like this at all. I really need this one to complete the outfit that I have in my closet, you know. It's always the next one. Do you have a next one? Yours is probably not guitars. And if it is, come and talk to me. But if it's not guitars, maybe it's something else that you would say, if I had that one, something in my life would be a little more complete. Maybe it's a beach house. Maybe it's a, a lake house. Maybe it's not a house at all. Maybe it's transportation. Maybe you want a Ferrari. I don't see that getting washed out there. Maybe, it's, maybe a Ferrari is a stretch. Maybe you just like a Toyota Camry. Or maybe you just want rust-free transportation. Maybe it's, maybe the, you know. But you think, if I could just have the next one, I'd be a little more content than I am now. Maybe it is not a material possession at all. Maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe a political circumstance. Like, I really wish President Trump would stop tweeting. Right? Or I wish the Supreme Court would uphold biblical values. But maybe it's not even a political circumstance. Maybe it's a little more of a personal circumstance. Maybe it is something like, I wish I could have children, but I can't. Or maybe it's, I wish my children would move out of the house. <laughs> like, can I say that on Father's Day? Yeah. That was bold. Maybe it's not in the family. Maybe it's a circumstance that says something like this. You know what? If I could get that raise at work, if I could get that promotion at work, I could be a little bit more happy. Or maybe it's not about getting work. Maybe it's getting out of work. Maybe it's and when I retire, I am waiting for the moment. Because when I retire, I'll be happy from that day forward. Maybe that's the circumstance you're waiting. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's like wives are saying, I would be happy 
if my husband would get off the couch and do some things around the house, and the husband says, I'll be happy if my wife would stop nagging about me about sitting on the couch. I don't know what it is for you, but my suspicion is, having lived and worked with people for many years, is that many people live under a false lie that believes that the next one is the key to happiness. And you and I live in a culture that is saturated by advertisements that are designed to conjure up desire in us to purchase the next one. And if you're paying attention to the advertisement of our day, what you discover is they are not selling us on the product or the qualities of the product, they are selling to us an idea, they're selling to us a desire, a dream, they have to make us want something in order to purchase. And so we live in a time in which billions of dollars are spent to convince you and me that the next one will be the right one. They're not selling a product, they're selling an idea. And the idea is that contentment rests in some material possession or circumstance. But is it really that way? Can it be different? And I suggest to you that the Apostle Paul lays out for us at the close of the book of Philippians an immense challenge to our culture today that puts up in the front of our minds the idea of really being people who are citizens of heaven and what that means. And let me then, before I dive into this, make one particular challenge today. Fathers, I contend for you that maybe the greatest offering that you can supply your children is to live according to the next four verses. That if you live like this, you will supply your children with a lifetime of contentment. Let's look at the Scriptures. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 And I'm going to go just verse by verse, beginning at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Let's get us back into the context because it matters intensely for this passage of Scripture. Paul is sitting in the slammer in the capital city of Rome. As I've said to you before, in that circumstance, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier that was rotated every four to six hours. Paul, the Romans, did not supply any of the needs of a person in prison. So every day, Paul depended on other people to bring him food and supply his needs, clothing and such. So imagine you're in slammer, you're chained to a Roman soldier, your mobility is limited, your enemies are out preaching the gospel and they're preaching against you. And as that is happening for the Apostle Paul, a familiar face comes around the corner. And this gentleman's name is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. And as Epaphroditus comes around the corner, Paul recognizes him. Because Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi. 
And Epaphroditus shows up with a basket of goodies for the Apostle Paul, supplying some of what Paul needs while he's in prison. And you can read about that earlier in the book of Philippians. And Paul now, as he's thinking about heavenly citizenship, and he says, you know, in the early part of chapter 4, that you're not living in a way consistent with your citizenship, and then he starts to outline the things that we've talked about the last few weeks. Paul is reminded about the fact that Epaphroditus was a messenger from Philippi delivering some of his needs to him. And he says, oh, i got to say thank you. I need to say thank you to the Philippians for their gift. And so he writes this. He pens these words. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. In fact, I, and he kind of gets, lets them out here. Because if you say things like, oh, you've renewed your concern, it could be interpreted as, you weren't concerned for me in the past, right? And now, finally, it's about time that you've shown up with something. I've been waiting here in the slammer for you to meet my need, right? So Paul, writing this, goes, oh, wait, I don't mean it to sound that way. So he lets them off the hook and says, I mean, not that you weren't concerned, but you didn't have opportunity. What does he mean by that? Of course, Paul's in Rome. The Philippians are miles away, and they didn't have opportunity. There's lots of reasons why they may have been concerned for Paul, but didn't give to Paul. Maybe they had no idea where Paul is. Was Paul in, in Athens or Corinth, or was Thessalonica, or was he over in Jerusalem, or is he in Rome? Where is Paul? He's traveling around. Where is he? I don't know how to get the gift to him. Or maybe, because of the persecution in Philippi, they didn't have a gift to offer. They were concerned, but there was no giving associated with the concern. Or maybe they had the gift, they knew where Paul was, but they didn't have a messenger simply to travel and give the gift to the apostle. So for whatever reason, Paul says, you were concerned for me, but you didn't have opportunity. But I want us today to know this, that concern with opportunity is intensely powerful to meet the needs of God's people. Sometimes, God meets the needs of God's people very directly. Manna in the morning, in the case of the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, or maybe at the prophet Elijah where the raven brought him food. Sometimes God meets the needs like that. But most of the time, the needs of God's people are met when opportunity and concern are married together and God's people are generous. And that's how God meets the needs of people. And in this case, the Philippians had concern and opportunity, sent the gift, put it in the pocket of Epaphroditus. He traveled to Rome, and he peeked around the corner of Paul's house arrest and saw the Apostle Paul, and then they met, and there was need, and the need was met. And Paul says, verse 10, I rejoice I rejoice that you've met my need. Now he goes on to des describe this rejoicing, what it looks like. And again, he's kind of letting them off the hook as if to say, listen, I want you to understand I'm so thankful for your need or your uh, gift. I'm grateful for that. But I also want you to know something, that I am not dependent on you for all of my needs. I'm grateful for it, but I'm looking at another source for my joy. Verse 11 now. Verse 11. 
I am not saying this because I'm in need. Oh, okay. He's letting them off the hook. You see that? Thank you for your gift, but I want you to know I'm not saying this because I'm desperate here. He continues, For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Really, Paul? I've learned to be content. Can we just pause here for a moment and just assert this? That contentment, listen carefully, contentment is not a possession. It's something that is learned. Now, I want you to know, I work at a, at a Christian college. We've got a gr- great programs. We do not have a major in contentment. There's not an online class that you take, you know, Contentment 101. There's not a, uh, like, foreign language requirement for this learning. But Paul says, this is what I need you to know that I have learned. There have been lessons in my life And what I have learned from them is I've learned to be content in any and every circumstance. What does he mean by content? Well, let me give you some history. The word content in its original context meant this. Imagine with me a blossoming meadow, a field, large enough that when the animals in the forest moved into the meadow, they could eat and be satisfied. That field, that green meadow supplying the needs of the animals in the forest, that meadow was referred to as being a content meadow. It met the needs of the animals. Follow? That word then was continued into a different context. When cities started to grow up in the ancient world, If a city had all of her natural resources within the city walls, all the water that the city needed, all of the food that the city needed was in the confines of those city walls, guess what that city was? That was a content city. The Stoics, people, a group of people at the time of the Apostle Paul, used this word contentment in this way. If all of the natural resources are within the city walls, that city's content. Then the Stoics said, well, contentment for me personally means that everything that I need for life is where? Right in here. I don't need any external stimuli. I don't need any external items. I am content right here. And here's how they proved it to one another. You would sit still, and someone would poke you. And you wouldn't react to the poking because that's external stimulation. You don't react to external stimulation because you are content in yourself. So they'd poke you. Didn't react. It's good. I'm content. And they'd have someone pinch you. Hmm. Don't react. Don't react. And they would build it up until someone would slap you or hit you in the face. And you were to not react to it. I discovered this years ago when my son came home from middle school. He said, Dad, you want to play this game? We play this game at middle school. And you know, I love middle school games. And uh, he said, hey, he said, here's how the game works. He said, uh, what I'm going to do every once in a while is like when uh, you and I pass each other or something, I'm going to throw a punch 
right at your face. And he said, here's the deal. I'm never going to hit you. But if you flinch, I get a free punch in your arm. And I said, no, I'm not playing that game. Punched him as hard as I could. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Come on. Right? Don't react. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to flip that idea on its head. See, I have learned to be content. I've learned to be at rest in my world. And he said, I can be content whatever the circumstances. <laughs> Do you see that line in the, in the verse? What? What kind of audacity does the Apostle Paul have to actually suggest while he's in prison that he can be content, at peace, at rest, satisfied while he's in prison. Well, let's move on and see what he's got to say about that. Verse 12. Now he's going to move on with these kind of rhythmic, balanced couplets. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Hmm. Apostle Paul knows both ends of life's spectrum, doesn't he? If you know something about the Apostle Paul's story, you know that at one point he references the fact that he was actually caught up into the third heaven, the paradise of God. Well, that sounds pretty extravagant, doesn't it? And Paul knows what it means to be caught up into the third heaven, that's at the top of life's experiences. But if you read passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you find things like Paul talking about the fact that he is the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. He talks about his beatings and being shipwrecked, scourging. Paul's the world's trash. He's overlooked. He's passed over. He's at the waist. He's been at both ends of the spectrum, and he's learned a secret of contentment. You say, well, I don't have that experience. I work so hard, and yet there's never enough. Have you had that experience? Have you said that to yourself? Brene Brown is a scholar at the University of Houston, and she writes this about our culture See if any of this resonates a little bit for you. She writes, For many of us, the first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Can I get an amen? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she continues. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of our hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already behind, we're already losing, we're already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get. 
or didn't get done that day. And we go to sleep burdened by those thoughts, wake up with that reverie of lack, this internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity lies at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. I don't have enough. It's easy for you to say, Paul, you're the missionary. I'm not a missionary. I don't have your call, Apostle Paul, and I don't have enough. Well, how much is enough anyway? That's a good question, isn't it? How much is enough? Because here's my hypothesis. If contentment and happiness is found in material possessions, those with more are more happy. Right? Now, John Mayer, the multiple Grammy Award winner, has a net worth of $40 million. He has a watch collection estimated at $10 million. And yet he writes a song where he sings, Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. Well, I guess $40 million is not enough to be happy. That's, you know, it needs to be more than $40 million, right? So we've, we've learned something today. $40 million is not enough. Something's missing. We need more, okay? So let's go more in, all right? How about the actor Jim Carrey? He has a net worth of estimated at $150 million. Okay, so $40 million is way down here. $150 million, that's enough to make somebody happy. Well, I don't know, because here's what Jim Carrey says. I really wish that people in America would be able to get everything they want. Because if Americans could get everything they want, they would come to discover that those things are not the real answer. Wow. $150 million is not the real answer? We could go on. You know where this is going. See, all I have to do is produce one miserable millionaire to debunk the hypothesis. And I just produced two. All I have to do is produce one peaceful pauper to debunk the hypothesis. And I've got one. I'm going to say this in the strongest words possible. But as the people of God who are citizens of heaven, we have in some ways been duped. We have bought the American dream, which is a lie. Paul says in this verse that he has learned the secret of being content. And if you've been tracking with us through this passage, by now you should be screaming at the text, Apostle Paul, if you know the secret, would you let me in on the secret? If you've learned to be content, could you share it with us? 
Please, Apostle Paul, don't withhold it from us. And I want you to know I am happy to report to you that the Apostle Paul is terrible at keeping secrets. Because he's going to write the secret to contentment in the most read book ever in history. And here it is. Verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Quite possibly the most quoted verse in the Bible. It is taped on the ceiling of weight rooms all over the United States. It is found in needlepoints and calligraphies. It's employed as an inspirational snippet in a host of context. And the implication of the way it is often used is that when you are in need of strength, you can call on this Bible verse and you will become the Incredible Hulk. And there is this massive triumphalism associated with this verse. Yes! So that when there's an accident on the side of the road, you can jump out of your car as a super Christian. You can go over to that car and you can pull that door off of the car, that burning car, and you can rescue those people. And when the reporters come and they ask you, how did that happen? You can simply say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Nah, not really. Sorry, that's not how that verse goes. It's not really what the verse means, because here's what I know. I know that you can't play a Beethoven symphony on piano without practicing. And I don't think it's God's intent that we should be able to step up to the piano and play it perfectly and then declare a verse. That's not what this verse means. It doesn't mean that you don't have to study for an exam and still ace it. That's not what the verse is referencing. It doesn't mean that you can jump off a building and not be hurt. And for those National Basketball Association fans, NBA megastar Steph Curry, three-time NBA Finals champion and two-times NBA Most Valuable Player, writes the words on his tennis shoes, I can do all things. Wrong. Steph Curry's got it wrong. Because if you don't finish the verse, you're sending the wrong message. You follow? The message of this verse is not, I can do all things. The message of this verse is controlled by the context of this verse, like all Bible verses. It is controlled by the context of the verse. Here is the context of the verse. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Let me tell you how to be content in every circumstance. Here's how you can be content no matter what life throws at you. You can be content through Christ who gives you strength to be content in that situation. Here's what this Bible verse means. Whether rolling in wealth or living in a box, 
I can be divinely enabled to do every situation contently through Christ. Here's why. Because Christ is so superior to any circumstance in my life, and I have Christ. What Paul is suggesting is that Jesus is every person's next one. Christ is the treasure, and He's available to every single person. I can be content because I have Christ, and He is enough. Because I have Christ, there's no fear of death. Because I have Christ, there is eternal joy in heaven. Because I have Christ, there is hope eternal. Because I have Christ, I am loved unendingly. Because I have Christ, I have peace. Because I have Christ, I know joy. Christ is enough. This is not about being a missionary. It's not about being in ministry. The promise extends to any and every situation. It includes every situation found in this room at this moment. The secret to contentment applies to those experiencing a rocky marriage. Christ is enough for that. It applies to those who have friendships that have soured. It applies to the lonely. It applies to those in family crisis or financial strains. It applies to those physically suffering. It applies to institutions that are drowning in debt and struggling in our grief, in our disappointment, in our unemployment. Christ, who is available to the Apostle Paul in the prison of Rome, is available to Gateway Church today. So we declare our heavenly citizenship every time we live contently in this world. So let me say this again. Fathers, one of the greatest things you can offer your children is to live contently as heavenly citizens. To help them see that Jesus is the next one. Jesus is enough. That you're not waiting to be content. You are content. And my struggle is often a struggle of unbelief. To sometimes just not believe that God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory, which is a few verses down from the ones we're looking at. To not believe sometimes that Jesus is enough, that God is able to make all things work together for good. So what is your next thing? What are you waiting on? No, seriously, what are you waiting for before you choose to be content? 
Because I'm here to tell you that you will search forever if you're believing the lies of the advertisement world. You will search forever and it will be empty. But today you have the opportunity to pursue an abiding contentment in Christ. Whatever the cards are dealt, because we know that the world's riches are discriminating. Some have a knack for making money and some don't. So whether in plenty or need, living on a yacht or living in a dinghy, health and wellness or an illness and sickness, we have opportunity to reveal our citizenship by living contently. Let's pray. Father, uh, you have given us the greatest gift, the greatest treasure and prize in the person of Christ. Would you please forgive us for substituting a thing where we should be pursuing Christ. Forgive us for thinking that if we just had one more or if our circumstances changed, that then we would get happy. But instead, God, would you now, by the work of your Spirit, massage deep into our heart this reality that contentment is available to us only through Christ. And it is Christ who can give us strength for every situation. Lord, I, I suspect that this week there are a number of people in this room that will bump up against some hard times, difficult news, a trial, a hardship, something that surprises them. And in that moment, would you call to their mind these verses? And may they pause and say, Jesus, you're enough for me now. I choose to live for you now. Thank you, Jesus, that you're enough. That we have found the treasure, the pearl of great price. We don't need to search anymore. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. And amen.